a woman got onto an elevator with only one other person, and as they rode the elevator, she casually turned and looked at him and was shocked to discover that he resembled a movie star, Robert Redford, probably a little bit too older for some of you. And so she stared at him for a while, and eventually she blurted out, are you the real Robert Redford? And he looked at her and smiled and said, only when I'm alone. Figure that out. Throughout the centuries, various attempts have been made to find the real Jesus. We want to know whether he's real. You hear people casually say, will the real Jesus stand up? And there have been three major quests, quests for the historical or the real Jesus in New Testament theology. We saw that in the 1700s. We saw that a second quest at the commencement of the 20th century. We want to know the real Jesus, and the Jesus Seminar in California has made it their mission to try to find the real Jesus because they, they believe that the gospel presentation of Jesus is in fact so layered with tradition from the early church that we need to peel back the tradition to find the real Jesus beneath that tradition. But Scripture presents the only Jesus who is indeed the real Jesus. And when you ask the Gospels and the writers of the New, the New Testament, who is the real Jesus? They will answer in various ways. You will find, for instance, that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented, the real Jesus is presented as the Jewish Messiah. Luke presents the real Jesus as the suffering servant. John views him as the Son of God, divine. And when you pose the same question to the writer of Hebrews, who is the real Jesus? He answers in a manner that is slightly different from the rest of the New Testament. He says, in effect, that the real Jesus is better than all. In fact, that term better drives his discussion of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Because he begins by telling us that Jesus is better than the prophets, better than angels, better than Moses, and better than the Levitical priests or the Levitical priesthood. And in fact, this is the topic that we have been looking at, Jesus in his relationship to the Levitical priests. In chapter 7, from which we read, Jesus is presented as better than the Levites or the priests, the Levitical priesthood. And the way the writer of Hebrews makes the case is by connecting, by linking Jesus to an Old Testament figure called Melchizedek. Now, when we think of Melchizedek, he doesn't motivate excitement in many Christians. We won't do a lot of Bible studies on Melchizedek. 
And if we think of Melchizedek, we think of one who is a controversial figure, perhaps best left alone. But for the writer of Hebrews, Melchizedek was an important figure. And he spends the first 10 verses of chapter 7 in a detailed discussion of Jesus' relationship to Melchizedek. In fact, you will find that in the, in the chapters preceding chapter 7, he will make three references to Melchizedek, beginning in chapter 5, where he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 4. Psalm 110 and verse 4 anticipates a messianic figure, a king priest who will come. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 5 that Jesus is this messianic figure who has come. He tells us there, he says, and he that is God also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 5 verse 6. In the same chapter, before the writer will break off to warn them against spiritual immaturity and apostasy, he reiterates that Jesus he says, was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing in chapter 5, 10, and 11. And then in chapter 6, verse 20, the verse that precedes chapter 7, verse 1, having told them that they have the promise of salvation, and this is the basis of hope, which is a sure and steadfast hope that is anchored behind the veil that is in heaven itself. He says also that Jesus has gone into heaven, and he describes him in verse 20, who is, he says, having be become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It is this person, Melchizedek, from whose order or in whose line Christ has come that the writer begins to develop in chapter 7 for this Melchizedek king of Salem. And so the first question we must ask is why does the writer of Hebrews find Melchizedek such a fascinating figure? Why does he link Jesus to the order of Melchizedek? I want to suggest to you that he does so in order to teach us that Jesus belongs to a category by himself. By linking Christ to the line of Melchizedek, to the order of Melchizedek, he's saying as a priest, our Lord Jesus Christ is in a category by himself. And what he will do is that he will draw attention to at least three aspects of Melchizedek's priesthood. The magnificence of his person, the permanence of his existence, and the greatness of his person in order to help us see the superiority of Christ's priesthood over that of the Levitical priests. So the question we're going to try to answer as we move through these 10 verses is what light does Melchizedek cast upon the high priesthood of Christ? He calls Jesus Christ a priest according to the order of Melchizedek to separate him and distinguish him from the priest who came from Aaron. 
But why? What light does Melchizedek cast on Christ's priesthood? As you read in the first two verses in chapter 7, it will become evident that by this discussion of Melchizedek, our Lord's priesthood or his high priesthood is superior to all, first and foremost, because of the magnificence of his person. One cannot read the description of Melchizedek in chapter 7 without realizing this was a lofty character. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom, Abra to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. What he does here, the writer of Hebrews, is he goes behind the text of Psalm 110, verse 4. And he goes back to Genesis, the book of Genesis, where we have the first and the only account of Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, we read that there was a king called Kedolamer who had four kings, a coalition of four kings. And they were ruling over five kings in the Dead Sea area, southern part of Palestine. These southern kings rebelled against Kedolamer after they had served him for 12 years. And Kedolamer gathers his coalition, his army, and he marches down from the north, and he goes down to the Dead Sea area, and he attacks these kings. He overpowers them, captures their goods, and takes their people captive and marches back up north. One of the survivors, knowing that Lot, who had been Sodom, was taken captive, runs to Abraham and tells him, Kedolamer has captured your nephew, Lot. And so Abraham moves swiftly. He has his own retainers, his own soldiers, some 318 of them. By the way, this is a very small force to go against a coalition of four kings with four armies. But he gathers these 318 soldiers and he chases after Kedolamer who had by that time gone about 180 kilometers north to the city of Dan, to the area of Dan. And when Abraham arrived there under the cover of darkness, he attacks Kedolamer's forces, defeats him, takes back the positions, the possessions that he had taken from the kings of the southern kingdom. And he also rescues his nephew Lot. When Melchizedek returns from the fight, from the slaughter. Two kings come to meet him. One of them is bearer of Sodom. And the other, the writer of Hebrew tells us, is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now we know from the Genesis account that when Melchizedek came, he brought food and wine to Abraham, but the writer of Hebrew does not point this out because it, it does not fit within his purpose of showing the superiority of Melchizedek. What he does teach us is that Melchizedek is first of all a king. 
And secondly, that he is a priest of the Most High God, that he blesses Abraham and that he receives tithes from Abraham. And he also explains the significance of his name. Now, all of this description of Melchizedek is to leave one truth that this was a great man. I mean, let me try to drill down on the greatness, uh, the greatness of Melchizedek, the magnificence of his person. First of all, he describes him as a king. He's a king of Salem. And Salem was a Canaanite city. It was the earlier name for Jerusalem, the same place as Jerusalem, which was a Jebusite city originally. Not only was this man a king, but he was also a priest. And it is very intriguing because he's said to be a priest of El Elyon, a priest of God Most High. What is fascinating is that this same God, whom Melchizedek served, is the same God that Abraham served. What I think is fascinating is how is it that a, a pagan, a, a, a man who is king of a pagan city, can serve God? How was he evangelized? How did he hear about Abraham's God? He's a Canaanite. They are pagans. Nevertheless, he was a king of El Elyon, the true God. And, and you know that he served the same God as Abraham, because in Genesis 14, when Abraham rebukes the king of Sodom, who wanted to give him possessions for his, in exchange for his people, who Abraham had rescued, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth. This man was a great man. You see the magnificence of his person. Why? Because here is the first person in Scripture described as a priest. And in his person, he combines two offices, the office of king and priest. And the reason then that Jesus is depicted as coming from the line of Melchizedek, it is because Melchizedek portrays and depicts Jesus Christ. Because it is in Christ that these two offices of king and priest Emerged. In fact, Christ has three offices. He's prophet, priest, and king. But Melchizedek, because he is a king and a priest, reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals that Jesus Christ is king. Behold, your king comes riding on a colt. When he was crucified, our Lord Jesus Christ was identified, the king of the Jews. But we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is not merely king of the Jews. He is the universal king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Not only is he king, he is also priest. And so we read even in this book where the writer describes the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ is then the true royal priest, the king priest. And Melchizedek typifies this. We see the magnificence of his person. 
Because the writer goes on not only to talk about his offices of king and priest, but goes on to describe him and to define his name. He's called Melchizedek. And here in Hebrews, we learn that the term Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. That's what we are told in verse 2. He's the king of righteousness. He's a righteous king. And again, in his very term, in his very name, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, he depicts Jesus Christ. Because scripture reminds us that Jesus Christ is indeed the righteous one. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, this was said of him, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Why? Because of his righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. It is referring to Christ. The great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah could say of the Lord Jesus Christ and speak of him. He shall be called the Lord, our righteousness, in Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says of the Lord Jesus, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. You see, Jesus Christ is indeed righteous. He is a source of righteousness, and in fact, he himself is righteous. But not only is he the king of righteousness, it is Christ who is also the king of peace. Isaiah has a marvelous statement regarding him. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul views Christ not only as the one who himself is peace, but from whom we receive peace with God. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He is the king of peace precisely because he is the king of righteousness. We do not have peace and reconciliation with God until we have received righteousness from God. For us to be in a right relationship with God, we need righteousness. And so Christ, the superior high priest, in the magnificence of his person, is the king priest. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace because he provides righteousness for us to cover our sins. We have peace with God. But what further light does this man, Melchizedek, shed on the priesthood of Jesus Christ? Not only does he show us the magnificence of Christ's person and therefore his priesthood is superior, Melchizedek reveals that Jesus Christ, that his high priesthood is superior not only because of the magnificence of his person but because of the permanence of his existence. In fact, at the very heart of the chapter is verse 3. It's a contentious verse. There is still a lot of literature generated on verse 3. The writer describing Melchizedek says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. This figure, Melchizedek, 
appears abruptly in the pages of Scripture and disappears just as abruptly as he appeared. He is a figure that is in many sense puzzling. He has no beginning, no birthday, no death, no point in time when he died. He has no mother, he has no father, he has no genealogy. We don't know who came before him or who came after him. He is further described as one who remains forever. Now this description of without father and mother, without genealogy, without birth and without death, has led many to conclude that Melchizedek was a Christophany, that is, a prefigurement of Christ. Christ appearing in the Old Testament in a physical sense. And there are many who read this passage that this is indeed Christ who came in the Old Testament. A physical manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament. This is a possible interpretation of who Melchizedek is. But I want to suggest to you that this line of reasoning that Melchizedek is a Christophany, Christ appearing in the Old Testament in a physical sense, this interpretation faces severe headwinds. First of all, it faces a historical challenge and a theological challenge, and it faces also a semantic channel. Let me go through this very quickly. It's very difficult to perceive Melchizedek as Christ in the Old Testament. Because the Genesis account depicts that Melchizedek was a real person at a real point in time. He was ruling on a throne in Salem. He was a contemporary of Chedorlaomer and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was known living in the Old Testament. So historically, this is a real person. There's no difference in terms of who this is in terms of reality. Just like the king of Sodom came, so the king of Salem came, Melchizedek. Theophanies and Christophanies we know in the Old Testament were very brief manifestations of God. God would come, he would adopt a human form, and then he would disappear. But Christophanies and Theophanies did not live in cities, did not rule on thrones, was not known as a contemporary of other people. Secondly, and theologically, the notion that this is a Christophany, a revelation of Christ in the Old Testament, raises question regarding the uniqueness of the incarnation. Because when Jesus came, born of a virgin, that is reported in Scripture as indeed the first and greatest miracle regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and his entrance into the world. If Christ somehow lived and ruled in the Old Testament, then the incarnation cannot be seen as a unique event. Thirdly, and perhaps more tellingly, is the very language of the text. So let's go back to verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days and nor end of life. You know, all of that so far is is damning to the argument that I've been trying to construct, that this is not a Christophany. 
What comes afterwards, I think, however, is foremost. The writer says, but made like the Son of God. But made like the Son of God. Aphomoia is the term translated made like. Aphomoia is a term that only appears here in the New Testament. It, made, it means to resemble. This man who has no beginning and no ending, who has no mother and no father, who has no genealogy, the writer says he has been made like the Son of Man or the Son of God. Made like the Son of God. You want to note that he does not say he was made the Son of God. He uses a comparative term. He was made like. He was made to resemble the Son of God. What I'm arguing here is that we don't normally resemble ourselves. We are who we are. The writer compares him. He is similar to the Son of God, but he's not identical to the Son of God. So the question then is, who is Melchizedek? And I would argue, as the majority of New Testament scholars would argue, that this is a type of Christ. He was a real person. He was a type of Christ. He was one who anticipated Christ's coming, not very different from types like David, who was a type of Christ, a true and eternal king. Well, Melchizedek functions as a signpost, a pointer pointing to Christ. You may ask me, but what do I do? What do you do with this description? Because it is formidable, this description of him in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's going back to the account in Genesis chapter 14, and he's drawing an inference from that account. Because you see, the Genesis account does not say anything about his genealogy, does not say anything about his parents, does not say anything about his birth or death. He's drawing then an argument about Melchizedek on the basis of the silence of Scripture. And what he's intimating is that the silence of Scripture regarding Melchizedek's ancestry, his birth and death, is deliberate. That is, he appears in the scriptures in this way, without any notification of birth or death, without any idea as to his parentage, because the writer wishes to compare him to Christ. So that in a literary sense, he is seen as, it, as eternal. But Christ is literally eternal. This was a real man, but there is no account of his birth or death. Because the writer wishes to compare him to Christ. And notice that it is Melchizedek who is compared to the Son of God and not the Son of God who is compared to Melchizedek. Because the Son of God precedes him. He is eternal. You see, the writer uses Melchizedek by omitting any detail about his life and death, his parents and so on. He is portrayed as one who is eternal. That he might be a picture of the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Melchizedek, 
then belongs to a priesthood that is eternal, at least in terms of the literal presentation in Scripture. And Jesus Christ is the eternal priest. He's a priest forever, a point that is emphasized throughout chapter 7 of Hebrews. The writer will tell us in chapter 7, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. He writes again, For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever. In chapter 7, verse 24, he says, But he, because... He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. You see, the writer links Jesus to Melchizedek, who appears in Scripture without father and mother, birth or death, to point out that Jesus is different from the Levitical priest, that he has an eternal priest who, just like Melchizedek, was portrayed in the Scriptures. It is Jesus, you see, who is a superior priest. Because as the Son of God, he has no father or mother. He has no birth and no death. He is eternal son. And the priest of the, of the Levites, those who came from Aaron, had to be able to trace the ancestry to the tribe of Levi. Christ, however, as the eternal Son of God, is an eternal priest. It is he through whom God has spoken. It is he whom God appointed heir of all things. It is through him that God made the world. It is he who is the effulgence of the Father's glory. It is he who upholds all things in the world by the word of his power. And it is he who has passed through heaven and has taken his seat at the right hand of majesty, the eternal son. It is precisely because he is the eternal son of God that he has an eternal priest. And Melchizedek therefore pictures him. But I must hurry on and say thirdly that Melchizedek sheds light on the priesthood of Christ, not only in terms of showing us that Christ is superior to all other priests because of the magnificence of his person and because of the permanence of his existence, but Melchizedek teaches us that Christ's high priesthood is superior to all because of the greatness of his position. And in fact, verses 4 to 10 makes this point. The writer continues to argue for Christ's superiority over the Levitical priests based on Melchizedek's own greatness. And he tells us that Melchizedek is so great that he's greater than Abraham. Now, let's look at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, who even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. You know, this is not a mean statement. Do you know, Melchizedek was great. But when you compare Melchizedek to Abraham, you would naturally say, if someone came to you and said, I, I give you these two guys, Melchizedek and Abraham, who is the greatest? Most of us would normally say, oh, Abraham. Of course. Abraham is called the friend of God. He is the father of the Jewish nation. Melchizedek is greater than Moses in Jewish literature. And yet the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek is greater than him. And he gives us two reasons why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. First of all, he says that Abraham gave a tithe to him. See? 
verse 5, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. And the argument is that the one who receives the tithe is greater than the one who gives the tithe. And tithe is simply a tenth of what he possessed. He will go on to show the greatness of Melchizedek, greater than uh, Abraham and greater than the Levites, because he argues in verses 4, 5, and 6 that the Levitical priests, they themselves received tithes from the people and through the Levites. At least Aaronic priests received tithes from the Levites, but they got it from the people. And he makes the point that these Levitical priests, they received tithes by commandment. By commandment. So in verse 5, that's the point is being made. They receive by commandment the tithes from the people according to the law. God mandated that the Levites were to receive tithe. But Abraham, the argument is, paid a tithe to Melchizedek even though he was not from the line of Levi and even though there was no commandment given to give tithe to Melchizedek. Why? Because Abraham instinctively recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. He goes on to show the greatness of Melchizedek to the Levitical priests, not only because Abraham gave a tithe to him, but he argues further that the Levites who received tithes, they died. Verse 8, but Abraham gave a tenth to the one who lives. And as I said, he lives, at least in the literature, he's seen as one who is eternal. Third, he goes on to say that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and the Levite because when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the Levites also paid a tithe because they are seen as being in the loins of Abraham. Because you see, Levite is a descendant from Abraham. And if Abraham the greater, greater than his ancestors, than his descendants, if he paid a tithe to Levite, then they paid in him. The second reason why he gives for the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham is not only that Abraham paid a tithe to him, but that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And verses 6 and 7 tells you that it is indeed the greater who blesses the lesser. A blessing, a blessing was a public declaration of God's favor. It wasn't just a, a word, I bless you. It, the blessing of God that was pronounced also produced riches and health and wealth. And so it had the power to indeed produce what it promised. Now Christ then is greater in his person. The greatness of his person is seen because he receives tithes and gifts from his people and because he's the one who blesses his people. And so let me conclude this aspect. First, Melchizedek points to the uniqueness of Christ's priesthood, that he is greater than the Levitical priesthood because of the magnificence of his person, because of the permanence of his existence, and thirdly, because of his greatness, the greatness of his position in that he receives tithes and gifts from his people and he bestows blessing upon them. Our litigious society requires that we, we frequently or sometimes need the, the, the services of lawyers. We need someone to represent our interests when we have 
a serious business transaction to undertake. And if we have to find ourselves before the courts, not many of us will trust ourselves to be able to represent ourselves properly, so we need lawyers. Now, just like we need lawyers to stand before us and represent us before the court of men, we need a superior lawyer to stand and represent us before God's own court. And God has given us that lawyer in the person of his son, who is described as a great king and a great priest. That we have the best person to stand on our account in heaven, who is Christ, our great king and our great high priest. And this leads us then to conclude that we must, as believers, first of all, maintain a high Christology, a high view of Christ. Do you know that the same problem, the same challenge that the first century Christians encountered is the same challenge that we encounter, that is the challenge of a diminished view of Christ. The recipients of the book of Hebrews had begun to view Christ as smaller than he really is. They had lost view of the real Christ. You see, it is impossible to think too much of Christ, but it is eminently possible to think too little of him. And this is precisely what was happening in the book of Hebrews. They did not recognize that Christ is the great king, the one who is king of glory, the one whom the Dutch theologian Baving tells us who rules over all things for God and for the will of God. You see, this is a great king. And he's not only a king, he's our priest. He's the one who came into the world to represent us. And how did he do that? He did so by taking our sins upon him and by going to the cross. He paid with our he paid our sins with his own blood. He died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead, and he has been exalted to heaven, and he stands there on our account. And you see, this one who is our priest is also king. He has to be king because, you see, he's able to fulfill all the things that he has done for us. He has the power, you see, to preserve us, the power to deliver us. He says, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, the one who is our representative is God our King. You see, we, we don't just need a Savior to die for us. We need a King to rule for us. One who is invested with divine, universal power to rule on our behalf, to protect us against the enemy, and even to protect us against our own selves. You see, we have a great, a great representative who is a great King and a great a great king and a great priest. He's omnipotent. And you and I must not only have a great and a high view of him, but we must go to him. You see, it is this great priest who has loosed us from our sins. It is he alone who is able to make us kings and priests unto God. We must have a high view of him, and we must embrace him. We must receive him 
We must look to his sacrifice as our priest. We must look to his rule as our king. But the passage not only tells us that we must maintain this high view of Christ, it also invites us to delight ourselves in our king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he is not only omnipotent because he is king and priest. He is eternal. I like the description of him in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verses 10 and 12, where the writer says of him, the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. You see, this is a glorious truth about our high priest. The reason that he is different from every other priest is that he lives. His years are never going to fail. He will never be cut short by death. He lives. And it means that so long as life endures, we have a priest and a king who endures forever. He will always be there. He'll be there in the thick of the battle. He'll be there in the hardness of the struggle. He'll be there when life ends for us. He'll be there. He always lives. You see, you can't have a greater Savior than this who has the power of an indestructible life. And it means that you and I must delight yourself in him because he will always live to bless you. He'll always live to protect you. He'll always live to comfort you. But this passage also calls you to render to your king and to your priest the homage and the obedience that he deserves. Because Jesus Christ is a great king and the great priest. You must obey him as your king and you must trust him as your priest. You must offer to him the tithe. You must offer to him the first fruit, the best of your affection, the best of your heart. You must give to him the best of your life because he's a great king and he demands the best of you. This one who rules and reigns demands that you surrender your life and all that you have for he is worthy of your affection and your devotion. Thank be to God that we have as our Savior one who is a great king and the great priest, a king priest who died for us, who intercedes for us, who blesses us, and one who reigns for our good and for his glory. May the Lord bless you all for Jesus' sake. Amen.